Hi guys, welcome back to another podcast. Today I'm joined with Mark Richmond, who's the Managing Director of Debt and Leverage, Leveraged Finance Capital Markets for BNP Paribas. Mark graduated from Exeter with a BA in History, then went on to work for KPMG, where he qualified as a Chartered Accountant, then subsequently moved to BNP Paribas, and then on to UBS, and then back to BNP Paribas. Thank you very much, Mark, for jumping on this podcast with me today. Do you mind if I start with a general question regarding whether your BA in history affected your employability and what you'd advise non-econ finance accountancy undergraduates and of the like to do to increase their employability? I think thank you very much, uh, Max, for having the opportunity to, to talk to you all uh, today. I think uh, from my perspective, the history degree certainly was, was a, a great sort of precursor um, to, to employment, uh, not necessarily um, the, the, the obvious track to go straight from history to uh, accountancy. Um, I think the, the, the beauty of a, an accountancy um, qualification is that they do very much train you from scratch. Um, so, for example, when I joined KPMG in 2003, of our intake of 32, only two had done finance-based degrees. They weren't necessarily looking, I understand, for, for people who, who'd studied uh, in the arts, but um, it's not necessarily. Well, it certainly doesn't block you from um, from getting going into a career um, in, in in finance. Um, but so, f- f- from my perspective, um, it's a fantastic degree. You learn lots of other skills, obviously uh, non-numerate um, skills, but certainly essay writing, um, critical analysis. Which you know, when I moved into BNP Paribas and to leverage finance, um, I actually found um, very useful. Thank you. What are, you, what are the um, main things your job entails, you know, on a day-to-day basis? So, so what we're really doing is um, we are helping private equity firms uh, acquire companies um, with the use of, of, of debt to enhance their returns. So we will um, analyze uh, businesses. And my, my uh, background was more on the, the TMT side, so telecommunications, media and technology. Um, and basically assess their um, capacity to um, take on debt to facilitate those acquisitions. So there's a lot of uh, analysis of um, business risk. Um, we build models from uh, you know on a bottom-up basis, um, to, you know, looking at revenue drivers, looking at cost drivers, uh, capital expenditure, working capital, etc., to ultimately um, come to a conclusion as to whether. Um, any particular business can sustain a, a, a level of a, a level of debt. Um, then what we will do is, um, uh, in a in a sort of um, in auction process environment, we will underwrite that debt. Um, and if a, the private equity sponsor that we happen to be working with is successful, um, that, that our debt package, in addition to their equity um, commitment. Um, will effectively be used to to acquire that company, and then they be, that business then becomes a portfolio asset of ours. Um, we manage the day-to-day banking relationship. We look to um, um, you know, support the company with uh, you know other um, you know uh, uh, other sort of more traditional day-to-day banking business, as, as well as having discussions with sort of C-suite executives around you know their event-driven financing needs, M&A, equity capital markets, etc. Okay. When you um, offer debt to your to these private equity companies, what are the um, debt products you actually offer, and what are the advantages and disadvantages of each? 
So we, we will typically um, lend, um, well, I said the, the, the market's obviously very aggressive right now, and, uh, and we've seen a return to, I guess, more, more 2006, 2007 style capital structures. Um, but we'll effectively um, provide underwritten commitments for term loan B, i.e. Um, you know, leveraged loan, and or bridges to um, high yield, so senior secured notes. We're also underwriting on the um, you know, the unsecured part of the capital structure, you know, bridges to senior unsecured notes. Um, we're, we're also seeing a return to um, uh, PIC debt, um, albeit typically um, uh, sort of PIC debt with a, with a cash pay element. So, um, you know, sort of deeply unsecured um, uh, part of the capital structure. So, given where we are in the in the current cycle, you know, investors are still. Um, continuing to to push funds um, into both leveraged um, leverage loans um, and you know, unsecured credit to chase yield, um, you know for the time being, um, and I, I'm sure we'll come to that. Uh, the market continues to be receptive, albeit albeit for the right for the right assets. So I, I think the one difference between where we sit today um, and back in 2007 is that, that generally the the underlying credit quality of businesses being bought by by private equity firms is, is higher. Um, that being said, we are now um, in, in a world where we're starting to underwrite financings for, for B3, B- um, credits, which obviously um, uh, is, is very much in the, in, in the, in the realm of, of, of sub-investment grade. Yeah. Um, what I think would be quite interesting is how, if you could um, tell us how ESG is being adopted into the leveraged finance market, and um, and if so, how how is it being adopted? Uh, very good question and, and and highly topical. I mean, the, the short answer is today we're very much at the infancy of of ESG financing, um, but as always, I think it's something that is clearly going to accelerate quite quickly, and there's certainly a lot of momentum behind it. So, in the investment grade world, we're already there. Um, you know, the, the we we've been underwriting structuring. Distributing um, you know, green bonds, green loans, um, sustainability-linked loans um, to to investment-grade companies, um, or, or even to, to sort of double B-type credits, um, certainly for the for the last few years. Uh, and, and BNP Paribas is very much at the forefront uh, of, of that, and we're the number one in lead tables for sustainable-linked loans and number three in, in in green bonds in Europe. But on the private equity side, it's something that certainly the private equity firms themselves are starting to now monitor uh, more on a um, asset by asset basis rather than just looking at it um, at, the, at, the, at the portfolio level. And that's important because ultimately they're the ones that are going to be driving um, the, the ESG agenda going forward alongside the investors. So the other, obviously, we have the private equity firms buying companies. We have investors who are investing in, in underlying Term loan Bs or, or, or senior secured notes or, or you know, unsecured notes, second lien, etc. They themselves are also now starting to raise um, ESG funds. Um, so it, it, it feels to us like it's only a matter of time. Where we are spending a lot of time at the moment, though, is trying to identify you know, what is the correct framework to do that within. For the time being, we've only had a handful. I'd say sort of five or six. Um, sustainability-linked loans um, in the uh, in, in the leverage finance space. Um, so it, it really is in its infancy. We, we we did one of the first um, 
but it's still um, very much a bank market. So, so banks are prepared to take a reduction in margins um, to the extent that uh, a company is able to um, hit a specific ESG target. And that's one of the reasons why we want to put a framework in place so that we're actually able to accurately measure those um, sustainability targets um, on a company by company basis. And uh, for, the, for the time being, it's still rather arbitrary. Um, but yeah, I think it's something in the next 12 to 24 months that we'll certainly be hearing a lot more of. Does the type of loan you complete on depend on where you are in the market, uh, in the you know, macroeconomic cycle? Or is it kind of, you know, you, um, you can offer and complete on loans, on different types of loans, whenever, wherever you are? Yeah, for, for the most part, the, you know, the market's been open. Um, it, it's more of a it's uh, it's more of a pricing dynamic, I should say. I mean, we, we, if you go back, and, and, and sadly, I, I do remember um, back to two thousand and seven, eight, nine. I mean, two thousand and eight, you know, post post Lehman's, uh, the market for leverage loans did, did shut. Um, we had a period of time in Europe where we didn't see a single high yield bond issued. Um, for for a number of a number of months, uh, and, and banks were laying off their their high yield desk, while the rest of us on the leveraged loan side were sort of restructuring existing loans, trying to extend maturities. You know, to the extent that the underlying credit was still okay. So it really just becomes a pricing dynamic, you know, basic supply and demand. So you know, as we see funds flows out of high yield and out of leveraged loans, um, you know, typically the price point um, at which um, uh, borrowers are able to, to to issue new loans and new bonds um, will, will typically go up. So it it it, it really comes down to basic supply uh, supply and de- dyna- demand dynamics. Mm. Um, and you also mentioned you have you have a portfolio. What are the different percentages or proportions of loans you've you've offered and completed on? Uh, so we um, across the leverage finance um, capital markets team specifically. Uh, portfolio loans out to private equity firms. We have roughly 4 billion euros um, across Europe. Uh, these are uh, loans that, that are, if externally rated, are typically um, in the single B category. Um, so very very much um, you know, on, on the leverage side. They're, they're secured loans. So we either um, book uh, revolving credit facilities or term loan Bs. Uh, we will not typically hold um, any um, either second lien loans or uh, unsecured debt on our balance sheet. So to the extent that we've underwritten that, we'll typically look to distribute that um, to third-party investors. Um, the, the, across the whole of um, Europe, you can imagine that the, the corporate loan book is, um, is, is huge, and I don't, I don't have the exact number um, to mind, but um, we will typically you know, lend um, you know, all, all across the, the, the credit spectrum. And, and as the biggest um, bank in, uh, in Europe, you know, we, we obviously have a large number of relationships with um, corporates also, either you know, leveraged corporates or simply you know, investment-grade corporates where we'll always typically have a, you know, a liquid, liquidity facilities um, you know, outstanding for, for them to ensure that we get a position um, for other ancillary business. Um, another question that would be quite interesting is um, considering the last economic crisis, how much more um, you know, is BNP Paribas restricted uh, in legal terms, but also in terms of um, fear in the market to not be so leveraged um, you know, compared to the run up to 2008? 
Sure. Well, I think if you look at where, where we are in terms of leverage multiples now, I think on the on the secured side, we're probably in, in line, if not um, slightly above now. If you look at total leverage multiples, they're actually still inside um, 2007. So there, there is... Um, uh, from, from a regulatory perspective, we are now subject to, to greater regulation, as you would expect. So one of the, the biggest um, changes in terms of deal structuring that's come in um, is that we have um, what we refer to as the ECB repayment policy, i.e. the ability to, to repay at least 50% um, of debt um, over a period of five to seven years. So that is a, 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 a sort of a hard um, cash flow metric that we will measure on the basis of the model, as I described earlier, i.e. building you know, very detailed, complex um, financial models, running sensitivities based on our, our understanding of the business, using our internal sector experts to come up with um, you know, different scenarios to basically ensure that we're able to justify, if asked in front of the ECB, that uh, that business can um, you know, repay greater than 50% of debt over um, over that five to seven year period. We, we also have, um, uh, well, the ECB have also put in place a, a six times um, le leverage target or hur hurdle, I should say, um, where the market is today with, with the majority of transactions for, I'd say, high margin, low capex, high cash conversion type businesses, the ones that we're you know, very much um, looking to, uh, to, to to lend to that six times um, level is 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 uh, I would say rather than being on an exceptionally based uh, an exceptional basis is 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 becoming more and more difficult to um, to, to stick to um, the market's very competitive um, the big difference I would say between the market here in Europe and the market in the US um, is that there are just so many more banks in, in Europe who are all competing um, for um, each and every process that we work on. So, um, in the obviously as a French bank in the French market, we're looking to um, basically fight um, to, to maintain our, our number one market positioning versus the likes of Cassie, Sopgen, Patixis, etc. You know, if you go to start working on a deal in Spain, you're you're fighting against Santander, um, BBVA, the local Caxa banks. Um, we own one of the largest. Uh, banks in Italy, but again, it's the same same sort of dynamics. You've got the local banks trying to protect their own lo local market share. Same in Germany, um, same Benelux. You know, it's it's a, just a very very competitive um, uh, marketplace. So you you can see while the, the the markets remain hot and investors continue not to push back, um, that that leverage multiples will continue to creep upwards. So how is London doing compared to other countries in Europe? Also, how protected are we as a financial space? I think there is there is an element of, of um, doubt. I mean, I would say that mostly driven, obviously, by by Brexit. I think people have different interpretations of how Brexit will potentially negatively um, uh, impact on our on our business on a day to day basis. And you have seen you know some reactions from from other banks. So we've seen some teams move from let's say US banks um, to, to, to Europe, but not the sort of in the sort of numbers that people predicted would uh, would certainly happen um, in in the in, in the press. So for for the time being, yeah, the the, the market continues um, to be very strong on the leverage finance side. For the most part, I would say um, you know teams are, are still typically based in the city, covering covering Europe. 
there are obviously you know, exceptions to that, and particularly where um, you know, local banks or local champions continue to have um, you know, mid-market um, LBO teams in their home markets. We still we still seeing that see, seeing that, um, but I think the sort of doomsday scenario that there's a you know a, a, a flight of quality um, employees across the channel um, and, and into continental Europe because it simply won't be possible to underwrite uh, and distribute loans for, for businesses that are headquartered uh, on the continent um, doesn't seem to have happened for now. Clearly, Brexit negotiations continue, um, and that and that may change, but I think people are feeling a bit more relaxed um, as, as we sit here today versus uh, 12 months ago. So also, how does the ECB and, you know, the bank's fluctuations affect BNP Paribas and other banks' lending, um, you know, criteria and processes? A, a lot of what we do, to be clear, is, is market-driven. So, you know, while the market continues to tighten and there's, um, you know, compression on spreads, it, it, it simply becomes an economic argument. So I, I guess it's less driven per se um, by the, the central banks, albeit the fact that, you know, the ECB continues to print is, is helpful for our market um, o- overall. I don't think it's necessarily driving that. I think individual investment decisions are still on a bank by base, bank by bank basis, done on a credit by credit basis, and it will simply be a case of um, looking at the the relative economics of one transaction versus another. And you know, on our side, uh, there is a um, you know, it's quite punitive to to underwrite and hold um, significant amounts of debt for um, sub investment grade companies. Um, there are a certain amount of risk-weighted assets that need to be applied based on um, you know, the rating of each asset, um, which means that you know, particularly in our space, when we're talking about single B uh, type credit, is, is is quite punitive. So it's really you have to look at each individual loan and say, look, you know, is that is that actually going to generate a return for my shareholders? Um, and I, I think you know that the current regulatory regime regime is, is, is simply harder than it was. Um, say, say ten years ago, so those sorts of discussions are, are you know are much more commonplace than um, than, than they were. Um, I think the last question, um, which would be quite interesting to touch on, with um, are the returns the you know the UK bonds experienced um, pre Brexit referendum from between uh, in the three years um, after uh, the referendum and when we actually left, and um, you know. And post uh, Boris's um, winning election, and maybe the future. I mean, it, what the one comment I'll make is, is that you know, in the whole of 2019, we only saw around 10 high yield bond issues in sterling. So it's not a particularly deep market. Um, for the most part, um, you know, investors um, with large pools of capital to deploy are typically um, holding those that cash in euros. Um, so you know, clearly, um, if you were a UK issuer looking to come to market the week before the, the, the Brexit vote, or, or, or even, the general, even the general election vote for that matter, um, would, would have put those plans on ice. Um, you know, you have to pick and choose your windows again. Um, you know, we, we, we saw um, last week Talk Talk price um, a, a new um, five-year, 575 million bonds inside 4%. So I think you could you can deduce from that that um you know investors are you know back in, 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 so the sterling or and or the UK market 
is, is, is back in favor for, for bond investors, but it's, it's never been a particularly deep market. We have a large number of issuers um, you know, outside the typical names, you know, the Virgin Medias of this world, who've been a repeat issuer for, for well over 10 years now. Um, you, 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 for the most part, if, if you're talking about um, you know, uh, bond issuance and on ter- and or term loan B issuance of greater than 500 million sterling, you're pretty much having to go to the euro market in any event and swap back to sterling. So if you look at your question from another way around, you know, how, how did um, you know, Brexit um, impact on the market? You know, clearly there were, going back to my earlier point around volatility in markets, that clearly there were you know, negative impacts, but the, the market has typically absorbed those and um, content, continue to push forward. You're right, right now, as we sit here today, um, I, I don't think the market's been um, any stronger um, in the last in the last three years. So, you know, having digested all, all of which has happened, um, you know, most re- recently for us with the with the general election um, pre Christmas. Um, you know, everyone came back to their desks in 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 January, and and the market we saw you know record um, issuance in in, in Jan um, versus um, you know not just prior prior year but but also prior years. We, we I don't think we've ever seen a, um, a, a as much um, you know, loan and bond supply come in in January. Mm-hmm.